0: All right, all right. Welcome, Disability Law Show. We are back. You are back. Good to have you along for the uh, the ride over the next hour. John Scholes here and Tamar Ogobian, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP, positively reviewed the most, you can check it out on Google. They've, uh, they've done exactly that. Great achievement because their service and their response is amazing. You want to reach out to tomorrow and her team, always ready for that chat. No commitment, man. Just uh, just ask some questions, right? one 855 821 Email address we'll get through today is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can ask them online anonymously at my disabilityquestions.com. That is how that works. But tomorrow, before we get into our uh, content, our emails for the day, you got something to talk about off the hop, pal. What do you got?
1: Always. And Mm -hmm. actually, before I even get to the week that was, John, I have to pause on this Google review aspect of it because I had a really great uh, turn of phrase this week from one of my clients who put up positive Google review and I appreciate him so much. And he coined the phrase amazing so Ah. smart amazing I said I'm going to copyright that I'm going to you know get a patent out and everything so I appreciate him very much and if anyone's curious about reading the full review go ahead and and take a, a read on the google because, you know, we take great pride in it, pride in it, John, because this is what we do day in and day out. And, and it's just so, so rewarding. Um, and look, does that parlay into what I'm going to talk about this today? Eh, a little bit. I think it's one of these tricky situations that seem to be coming up um, quite regularly. And it's this idea of having a partial work capacity. And what do you do in a situation where you're not fully back to full-time hours and duties, um, and you're struggling with, you know, do you continue to pursue the disability claim? do you deal with your employer? what what to do here? And no. I'm going to emphasize this time and again that the main takeaway here folks is that we specialize in both areas, okay we do disability work and we do employment work and we are excellently suited to try and do this analysis for people to figure out, Look, which way do you go? Uh, What's the right next step? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there exposure for the disability insurer? Is there exposure for the employer? And so I'm going to dive right into uh, a woman that reached out to me this week. Uh, It was a follow-up call. She and I had had a fairly long consult um, a couple months ago. And, you know, she was really feeling the pressure from the insurer to, you know, get back to work. They did all of the things that they normally do, including putting her through uh, one of these rigorous rehabilitation programs. Uh, It was an eight-week program, very intensive. Uh, It's called a work hardening program. So Mm -hmm. imagine even just that word, you know, they're going to put you through the ringer. Um, And the idea being that they're going to invest, the insurance company is going to invest in these resources so that at the end of it, they can say to you, okay, now you are ready to get back to work. We don't continue to have to pay your disability benefits. You're good to go. And that's sort of how it transpired with her in the sense that there was some buy-in by her own medical team early on to at least make the attempt. And at the end of this work hardening, she felt uh, and her doctors agreed that there were there were, you know, re-emerging of symptoms and issues. Um, so she was kind of worse off, actually, John. Uh, but of course, the insurance company would not be deterred. So she felt the pressure as many people do, frustrates me to no end, but she felt the pressure and she decided, despite the fact that her doctor said stay off work, to actually attempt to return to work. So she started back on, she did it gradually, and lo and behold, now we're two months after that, and she just cannot sustain this level of work. Uh, her All doctor right. has said, you, you got to stop working. And she she's feeling sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because she knows that she's going to have a challenge trying to get the insurer to kick benefits back up again. Um, they'd actually continue to pay a little bit for a little while as well, because they do top up payments for some policies while you're returning back to work. Uh, and, but of course, then the, the issue becomes, well, um, I was getting some portion from the insurer and then of course getting some income, what do I do here? And so this is the discussion that we've been having with her this week. I had with her specifically, and we went through her options. And the key in my mind was that her doctor was supporting that she either continue to limit her hours or stop working altogether. Okay. And so I always say to people, you do have to follow medical advice. It's actually not really much of a legal question in my mind. I think that the legal rights flow from what decisions that you make about your health and what makes sense uh, in consult with your own doctor. And I absolutely understand the frustration around the pressures and what do I do financially and so on. But this is what the insurers want. John, think about it. They've been on this path now with her for several months with the work hardening and the pressure and now the cutting off the claim and now resisting her essentially trying to broach some kind of a recurrence uh, claim with them. And so why why give them a pass? I don't want to give them a pass. And in fact, that's exactly what I said to her. So I'm in the process of getting retained We are going to pursue the disability insurer, and we're going to revisit whether or not the employer did everything that they needed to do in her circumstances. But in my mind, when the health issues are front and center, and they often are, the starting point has to be the disability claim. No matter which way we look at it, in my mind, that's the more pressing concern because the health is primary, and that will dictate whether or not someone can... Ultimately, return back to work. What they do with their employment, uh, but they don't have to actually make those decisions necessarily right away. Now, I want to put the caveat out there for those who might be listening that this is not a one size fits all. This is why I wanted to start off our show talking about this topic because it is a very case by case basis. And I know people feel hesitant about contacting a lawyer and talking to a lawyer about what their options are. But, but for our team, it's absolutely free. You have zero pressure to retain us and move forward and start a legal claim, but at least ha- give yourself the opportunity of having that conversation with me or someone else so that we can make those choices and you feel empowered by the decisions that you're making. Because frankly, the last thing I want to see is people getting pushed around by the hmm. insurance company and buckling in that pressure of, well, I must return back to work because what else am I going to do? They're going to cut off my claim. And maybe I lose my job, and I don't know, and I don't know. Um, And that's the unfortunate side to all this. And let's not forget, John, I mean, that can also bring rise to more stressors um if you've got a mental health disability this certainly that scenario is not going to help i mean i can think of a dozen different ways that this can impact individuals in a negative way and what i want to do is offer people a lifeline i want to give them the opportunity to at least have a conversation and then if it makes sense to actually retain us and and make it my problem because i can tell you once we get involved john i mean those phone calls and those dealings with the insurance company i mean that ends that becomes my problem i will yes, deal with best. them um, it is the best. I mean, because you can see that, that it can be a path and a journey and a frustrating one for people. Um, and making those choices are certainly very difficult. And so I want to make it as easy for people as possible to work with us and know that we have their back in terms of going forward. And it costs you nothing, guys. I mean, we work exclusively on contingency we only get paid if we're successful in getting money on your behalf against the insurer. And so there's no down risk. Literally, there's nothing to lose uh, and certainly at least have that phone call with us.
0: Yeah, you know, that contingency thing, I think it's it's worth mentioning too. It's, it, it's not sure. only, I think, the proper way to go, but it's kind of good insurance policy for clients because – you know, rather than just casting a wide net and taking everybody on, whether they have a chance or not, you guys are not going to put you in your resources and your time if you think they don't have a case. So it forces you to be honest as well, because nobody's going to get helped if you're just taking everything. You know what I mean? It's no good for anybody. So absolutely. This way, you know, if, if you take them on under the contingency, well, then they know they have a serious shot of getting something from the insurance company going forward.
1: Right? Uh, absolutely, John. And so this is the thing that I think most people don't seem to realize is that Part of our role is to in fact get involved in the types of files that make sense that we think can be compensated for at the end. And so reading between the lines for those that get, you know, that we do retain, that get retained, that retain us rather, uh, and that we move forward with, that is absolutely the underlying basis for doing so is that we think that there are arguments to make. Uh, And that at the end of the day, those arguments are going to translate to dollars, both for our clients and obviously inevitably for the firm to some extent as well. Uh, But that's the primary valuation. And so This is why sometimes we have actually, you know, various conversations and emails and communications with people over a period of time, because sometimes it doesn't necessarily make sense to get involved early on, but it may make some sense down the road. And so I never want to close that door for people. I want people to have complete transparency and also have access to us so that they can ask those questions. Because I think that even when people are getting their disability benefits, John, sometimes they'll get through these stumbling blocks and they're hesitant to even think about calling a lawyer and finding out what their, their rights are with a disability claim. And they shouldn't. Just because you don't have a, a legal basis for some kind of legal claim right this moment doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't inform yourself about your rights. Because for the vast majority of people, They've never dealt with a disability insurer before. Never. Mm -hmm. Usually this is the first time, hopefully the only time that they have to do this. And, you know, there's no guidebook. There's no manual. The the adjuster isn't going to tell you, okay, this is what's going to happen with your claim on week one and week two. They don't want you to know actually, because it puts you in the weaker position, so to speak, that bargaining power between the insurer and the claimant. They like to have the upper hand, (laughs) John, and I like to level things out, okay, I get involved and that's the upper hand now goes away, right? Because I, they know what I know, I will assert myself, they know that I'm going to champion my clients, right? And so I want to at least be given that opportunity to do that. And I think that the starting point of that is people finding out, you know, who we are, what we're about, let's have a conversation. And we make some choices after that as to whether it makes sense to move forward. And again, at no cost, you know, you absolutely have no risk in terms of uh, actually starting a legal claim against the insurer if you, you know, decide to work with us.
0: Yeah. Another fringe benefit of starting that claim. And I know it brings a great amount of relief even before you get way past to a settlement is the fact that the phone calls stop because now they cannot contact your clients. It has to go through you. It's a brilliant shield.
1: Exactly. And that's really the number one thing. The first thing that I do once I have yeah. that signed retainer, John, is that I send that letter, that that warning shot to the insurance company saying, hey, I'm involved. Do not contact my client. you have any questions about this claim, you contact me. And by the way, I'm going to sue you after you send me your whole claims file. (laughs) So send me all the documents that you have, all the reasons that you say my client is not entitled to benefits. I will start that legal claim and then I'll talk to your legal counsel about uh, getting some sense and getting this thing resolved for our clients sooner than later
0: quick break and back with more. Your emails will begin. So we'll get those uh, on here shortly. You want to send one along. In the meantime, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll get answered even outside the hour of the show. It's not just for the show, but it's a good uh, good launching pad for sure. The number that tomorrow is speaking of to reach out and have that conversation initially, one 5900 And we continue with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. You have the uh, availability and the opportunity to reach out anytime to Tamar and her team outside the this hour of radio that we do every week and you can do so by the phone call, initial contact, I guess, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. And for uh, quick, easy to read, concise memos about the topics of LTD, it's not legal speak, it's layman's terms, so even I can read it, ltdfaq.ca is a good place to start as well. Okay, let's move down to Sheila. sheila been waiting Says, hey, tomorrow I work in the medical industry and have been off work for a year because of an injury to my back. I applied for LTD shortly after going on leave, but was denied by the insurance company. I just sent in my second appeal, but I'm worried I'll be denied again. I've already been off work with no income for a year. My doctor has told me that my injury is too severe to return to work yet. How can I get the insurance company to approve me? Yeah.
1: Call me Sheila.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> look,
1: um, I think that this highlights a couple of really key issues. Uh, Number one, there are instances where people are actually getting denied disability benefits right out of the gates, John. So it's not a cutoff of benefits. It's actually a straight up denial. We're not even going to approve you. We're not even going to give you a dollar one. And when I see instances like that, and then people opt to appeal after that, my heart just breaks because I know that they're on a journey that's going to be very long and one that honestly, if we could just get involved sooner than later, we can just shorten that time frame. It will allow, and what I'm getting at Sheila, by the way, is starting a legal claim. This appeal process can have multiple rounds of appeal. I was actually trying to explain this process I think it was to a friend and and she was had caught one of our shows and she's like what what is this appeal thing that you're always going on and on about and I, and she's like so how many times can you appeal I'm like it, they don't tell you actually usually it's 3 but it's not written down anywhere but imagine so if Sheila has already been off for a year she's been denied she's already appealed once and she's just sent her second appeal John imagine it could be months before she gets a, an outcome, another round of appeal, potentially maybe more. And what what is the insurer going to say? They've already said no to her. I'm counting three times, I think the first time, the mm-hmm. second time, and maybe potentially a third time. It's just not going to happen in that scenario. And I'm not really sure what the disconnect is. Uh, I think it could be maybe medical, maybe there's some other scenario, maybe there's an improper understanding about what kind of job she's doing. There's a whole host of reasons. But at the end of the day, I think my focus really wants to be in a situation like this to say to people, please, if you go down this process with the insurer, you are losing time. And in that time, you are not getting paid. So eventually, Sheila is going to get to a point, possibly, like the one the topic I talked about right at the top of the show, John, people get desperate because they don't have income and they're going to put themselves and their health at risk by feeling that pressure by going back to work. If you enable us to assist you, and if there's a basis for us to do that, we work as quickly and efficiently as we can because we're just as motivated as our clients to get a resolution. That's the only way that anybody gets paid in that scenario. And that's a big motivator. Plus, insurance companies know, John, the longer this goes, I mean, the adjusters don't care but their lawyers and their instructing clients, the ones that come to the mediations, the ones that we deal with in these litigated legal claims on disability, they know what I know, which is every month that goes by that they're not paying that benefit is a risk to the insurance company that that benefit eventually will have to be paid. And then some damages, interest, legal costs, there's all sorts of things that come on top of that. And so that's why the insurer gets motivated, like my client and I get motivated to try and get that resolution, and it alleviates that frustration to go through this quagmire of appeal over appeal. But looking at Sheila's situation in particular, just from the information that she's given us, she works in the medical industry. I gotta think—I can't even think of in a medical industry job that necessarily would be sedentary. I think most of these jobs are quite physical or have a physical component, no matter what. I'm thinking of hospitals, I'm thinking of medical offices, like very busy places, right? And when you have an injury to your back, like Sheila describes to us, uh, to me, you've got a back injury, it's a physical job, you're not able to work. Like, there's no, you know, gray around this kind of a situation. And so I am scratching my head as to why the insurer is resisting her claim. And so what I was talking about earlier was the disability insurer has to look at these components. They have to look, at least for the initial phase of a disability policy, what Sheila's own occupation is, what the essential duties of that job is that she's doing, the main stuff, not the extra little bits that you do here and there, the primary things. And they have to line that up with her health issues and connect whether or not she's disabled from doing those key, key job duties. And if they think that she's able to work, they're going to deny her claim. So has there been sufficient information put over to the insurer? I don't know. I know that when we get involved, John, we facilitate getting this information to the insurance company. Again, it's one less thing for claimants to have to do. We will do that as part of our services. In fact, if we think that it may benefit the claim, we might even have a conversation with a doctor, someone's treating provider, perhaps a psychologist, psychiatrist, anybody, doesn't really matter, depends on the disability claim. But I'm happy to have that conversation and just say, look, I think I need a clear understanding of what your opinion is about how my client is doing, what's their diagnosis, what's their prognosis, what's the likelihood for a return to work, and so on. And fill in those gaps, potentially that may be there, to try and get the insurer to understand that this individual really cannot work, and this is the period of time that benefits should have always been paid. And I think I don't like the fact that it's taken Sheila this long to get to this point. Which is why I talk about appeals. Which is why my friends ask me about it. Um, You know, it—it's just something that has been conceived of, John, by the insurers to keep people in their process, and they're biding their time because what's eventually going to happen? She's going to run out of money. She's going to be desperate. She's just going to get back to work, and the insurance company is not paying either way, right? You get back to work, they're not going to pay. You stay off work, and you don't pursue them; they're not going to pay. So, other than suggesting to her strongly that we get retained, get involved, move the claim forward with a legal claim, you know, I really, you know, don't know what else to offer people. Of course, free advice, free consults, all of that is important. Uh, But I think when I see these kinds of scenarios where it should be fairly routine acceptance of the disability claim, I get really frustrated uh, and want to get involved and want to actually see where the disconnect is with the insurer.
0: Sheila, nicely done. You've obviously got the email sent off. Now take the next step for some uh, some satisfaction and more information for sure. What we just talked about here, you can have this conversation with Tamar. So uh, please reach out and stop this appeal business. It's just the worst. But it's 1 855 821 5900. Sheila, thank you so much for tuning into the show. You know, if someone. And adjusters, I mean, you know, you say this, Savannah says this, James says it on the show, you know, you guys got a lot of friends in the business who are adjusters, you know, you go out for a few beers. They're good people. A lot of them are good. It's it's from a professional standpoint. Again, some are great. Some are not so great. So if someone doesn't want to speak to their adjuster and it's kind of dodging their calls or emails, will the insurance company at that point just say, okay, we're going to cut you off regardless?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, yes, adjusters are doing their job. I've met many yeah. that I consider friends. All of that is true. John, you're right. Uh, But they do have a job to do, and the job that they have to do is not an easy one, which is why many adjusters don't stay in that job for very long, (laughs) John. I don't know if you knew that, but anyway, uh, but in the time Mm -hmm. that they are doing this job, they have quotas, they have many, many, many files to deal with, and the goal really is to either close out claims, cut off claims, deny claims, okay? And they're given four or five tools at their disposal to do that, not a lot of support, not a lot of resources, no training by the way um and so there are some adjusters who take this role almost a little step too far there are times where i've encountered individuals describing to me weekly harassing type phone calls where the call itself is very aggressive very accusatory what have you been doing what did you you know this kind of tone um You know, follow up emails that perhaps don't totally represent what was discussed, uh, this sort of thing. That borders on some really difficult and troubling adjusting. Uh, And I think that if you're in a situation like that, you know, you do want to make sure that you understand that there perhaps are some options. Uh, The answer isn't necessarily to just ghost someone, right? You don't want to be blocking your adjuster to having that ability to work with you and adjudicate your claim, assess your claim, and ensure that they're going to release that monthly benefit, because it's a month-to-month assessment for these adjusters. By the same token, if it's bordering on actually harming your health, if every interaction that you're having with your adjuster is actually setting you back um, and and it's it's not productive, then I do think that there are some options in the sense that you can try and, and actually engage the adjuster and say, look, you're really these conversations are not helpful. I'm having a really hard time working and dealing with you. Can we try and maybe do this only by email? You can also consider talking to a manager, You know, call, call the main customer service line, talk to someone above this individual, see whether or not you can work that through and get another set of eyes on your claim and what's been going on. But the last thing I want people to think is, look, if I just avoid it, it's just going to go away. What would go away in a situation like that potentially is your disability benefit, unfortunately, because insurers do consider this a compliance issue. In other words, they expect that you are going to cooperate with their efforts to adjudicate your claim and that you will be responsive to their inquiries. And don't forget, these adjusters, they come at it with a high level of cynicism you know, they, they're cynical about, you know, motivational factors and other things. I think we talked about credibility last week, John. But, you know, I think that they get informed by things that are non-medical. And sometimes that they project that onto legitimate, you know, honest people, uh, unfortunately. And so there is that human element to it. And so I always say to people, look, you want to create a bit of that relationship with your adjuster where there's some mutuality, open and honest dialogue, and so on. That can only help your disability claim. By the same token, recognize that they do have a job to do, and their job is to try and bring your claim to a close as soon as they can. So I wouldn't necessarily advise that you you cut off you know, all contact with a difficult adjuster. I would encourage people to try and work through that process. But if it's getting to a point where you really cannot manage um, it's causing mental health conditions and other things. Then I do think that it's appropriate to either, you know, talk to a manager or get a medical note or something like that and work through that process, perhaps get a different adjuster assigned. But I would yeah. say that's sort of the worst case, worst case scenario.
0: Let's get to EJ, uh, AJ's email here with our remaining yeah. few minutes, and we'll look at the part of it anyway. It says, guys, my best friend just got a denial letter in the mail from his LTD insurer, and they said that they don't consider him, here's this term we love, totally disabled. I don't get it. He's been off work for eight months now because of severe depression and hallucinations. He has PTSD from being a victim of a robbery last year. His doctors have all said that he's not able to work and is in, on a lot of medications. Is there anything you can do to help? Absolutely
1: yeah absolutely aj i think this is uh, an interesting profile because the inherently the inherent basis of the disability claim is a mental health one john and and we talk about this occasionally that you know insurers and adjusters just you know they've come a little ways on their understanding of adjudicating these kinds of disabilities but not far enough sometimes in my mind and and i think that this may be highlighting this email from aj what he describes about his friend is really highlighting some of those difficulties right because Mental health conditions, they're not ones that you see on a scan. And I can—I still see adjudication where the insurer or the even the medical reviewer is saying there's no objective medical, there's no testing, there's no this, there's no that. What's that going to change? The, at the end of the day, mental health conditions are symptoms. And those symptoms, if they are disabling, in other words, they are preventing an individual from working, then those benefits should flow from that. That's the test of total disability. But let's get into that after our break, John, talk a little more about it.
0: Absolutely. Stand by, AJ. Thank you so much. The answer is not complete yet. We'll do that after a short break. In the meantime, you can send along an email as well. It might appear in a future show. And to do that, help at disabilityrights.ca. Further questions can be asked on your uh, tablet, desktop, smartphone, whatever, mydisabilityquestions.com. That website is free and anonymous. It's also got a searchable database of past questions. So have a look at that. And finally, of course, as we get into a break, the phone number one 821 5900 More disability. Law Show is on the way. Hang on. All right, back. Disability Law Show, reaching out to Tamar and her team. Don't hesitate. Have that chat, right? Phone call, one 821 5900 or help at disabilityrights.ca. Let's get back into AJ. You know, panicking, PTSD, been off work, can't go back to work, suffered a, uh, a robbery last year, and he's getting the old totally disabled. That's why you don't consider, or at least the insurer doesn't consider him totally disabled. And uh, here we go, breaking down that exact definition again, right, Tamar?
1: Yeah, really difficult situation because this term totally disabled you know can seem very elusive sean and it's like the million dollar term right this is something that insurance company con- conceived of i don't even know 20 years ago or something more than that um as a means of uh denying this valid disability claims right and so you know you think about totally that word you know what does that really mean like you're laid up all the time you can't move can't walk can't eat, like, It's just so such a big word and so pervasive. But the reality is courts have said it's not actually totally right that you can have a limited level of function, you know, to do basic things, even to the point of like caring for family members and other dependents, but still be disabled from working because totally disabled. It's not just on its own, right? There's a whole set of words that come after that. Uh, And I know it can be mystifying for people. I know it is mystifying for a lot of medical practitioners. I've had those discussions with doctors and other people and in that realm. And so I want to disabuse this notion that totally means that you're completely incapacitated and can't do anything. And I think when it comes to mental health disability claims, that's where really people get stuck. Adjusters look at it very conveniently to say, Well, you're going out grocery shopping, so this must mean that you can do your job. Hmm. Well, those two things don't connect in my mind John. Not at all, actually, because if you don't go out grocery shopping, you can't eat, and if you're not going to eat, well, yeah, we know what that happens. That's not a good scenario. So I think that I understand AJ's frustration. He says his best friend gets this letter. It says total disability or totally disabling, and I don't get it. You're right. Um, It's not meant for it to be terms, actually, for people to understand Because if people understood it, John, more people would challenge the insurance company when they say to them, you are not totally disabled. Okay. So it's done with some intention. Those words are used very carefully by disability insurers. They're contained in every disability policy. And they are meant to deter people from actually pursuing benefits. Because even the term itself, I've had this conversation with a few clients who say, I don't like the idea of being considered totally disabled tomorrow. I don't feel like that's the right term of where I'm at right now. I'm just struggling with my health. Could be mental health, could be something else. And I just simply cannot work. Okay, I absolutely accept that. And so allow me to help you to move the needle with the insurer. I think in circumstances like this, once I explain it to my clients, they understand that label doesn't necessarily mean what I think the insurer wants it to mean. I I also think that adjusters don't really know what the law says about what it means. And so it's very simple, actually. If your doctor is saying to you, you cannot work because your health, you are entitled to disability benefits. That's it. That's all it is. And so everything stems from that medical support. So if you've got it, I have no hesitation to take on these claims. My team is the same. Let's move forward. Let's start that legal claim and really challenge the disability insurer on what they are wanting, which is that people will just give up, not pursue the claim, maybe get back to work, maybe not. But at the end of the day, they don't have to pay. And I don't like that.
0: AJ, thank you so much. Here's how you reach out by phone. You probably have it already, but uh, but just in case, right? It's uh, 1-855-821-5900. Um, information, what kinds needed to get approved for disability benefits from mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, or in AJ's case, like PTSD, stuff like that? Yeah. What do they need? So look,
1: the medical information should provide as much detail, I would say, as possible. I think because mental health claims in and of themselves are very individual, they they impact people differently, one person to the next. Yes, that diagnosis is important. But I think the way that that diagnosis, those symptoms that, you know, perhaps AJ's Friends is experiencing or other people are experiencing as they're listening to the show I think getting the doctor to not only explain them, validate them, uh, really put a focus on them, I think helps a lot. I mean, look, if you can see a specific mental health specialist, John, I think that also goes a long way. And, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about family doctors, they're incredible. But when it comes to mental health claims, I find generally insurers have a bit of a bias about the family doctor providing that mental health diagnosis and treating that mental health diagnosis. I think at some point, they want to see a psychiatrist and maybe even a psychologist either provide that diagnosis or provide some kind of commentary around the treatment and the symptoms and, and so on. And so that would be the additional layer, I think, with mental health claims is that, you know, the buck doesn't necessarily stop with your family doctor saying you're disabled by virtue of mental health it's frustrating. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I've been around the block with these insurers on these mental health claims. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that it goes a long way to have a specific mental health specialist. And look, you know what, John, it doesn't even need to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Cause I know that can be, there's a long wait time. It could even be like a support worker, a counselor, just someone who has some specialty around mental health conditions who can weigh in on what's happening. Um, I have a client who is saying that there are resources online now you can actually do questionnaires yourself online and those questionnaires will actually give you it'll pop out you know Mm. the severity of of certain conditions it will give you a sense of what you know is it is it depression is it anxiety is some combination of the two and you can print off those questionnaires and actually he submitted them to the insurance company and so yes it's not as so-called, you know, a rubber stamp from the psychiatrist, but it is a tool. And it's at least a tool to try and demonstrate to the insurer in some way that this is real, that these symptoms you're experiencing are absolutely disabling. And as a result of this, that you cannot work. Uh, So look, it's not as easy as getting an x-ray report or, you know, (laughs) getting a surgeon to say, we're going to do surgery and this is going to fix you. You know, it's not one of those. There's, there's a lot of nuances to it. And because of that, I think explaining those details to the adjuster or the insurer that you're dealing with, it goes a long, long way.
0: Want to get to uh, Bryce's email after a break tomorrow. Might be scratching the surface on on surveillance. Possibly we'll talk about that because this Ooh. is a really, this is a, a crazy topic with people because it freaks them out, but we'll provide some clarity on that after a short break. But in the meantime, to reach out like Bryce is coming up in the email here, help at disabilityrights.ca, and the phone number, 1-855-821-5900. We continue. Short break is right here, and then coming right back on The Disability law. Show. All right, welcome back. Thank you so much for sticking around for the hour. If you haven't reached out uh, to us yet, you can do so tomorrow and our team always ready for a chat after the show for some clarity, for information. That's what this whole show does. It opens up your eyes to things you possibly didn't know were available or at least a uh, way you could help when it comes to your disability claim dealing with that insurer. At, uh, at any time. The phone number moving forward every time, one 821 5900 Email address we go to is help at disabilityrights.ca and any further questions can be asked online. Go to a free and anonymous website called mydisabilityquestions.com. Okay, Bryce is up next. Um, good email here. Tomorrow says, guys have been on long-term disability for just over a year now. The other day, I noticed that someone is following me with a camera I've been going to the gym twice a week, per my doctor's advice, to help ease my stress and anxiety. I'm worried that the insurance company is going to use this against me. Should I stop going if the insurance company is recording me? What can I do if they stop paying me because of this? Now, we're assuming it's the insurance company. We don't know yet, right? Right. Call the cops. Well,
1: (laughs) this is the thing, you know, John. I, I do have some... Uh, People that I've spoken with, some clients that I've spoken with that have a high degree of paranoia, as they should, Mm -hmm. um, that this is what's happening and then it turns out it's not really the insurer doing the surveillance. Either way, (laughs) whether you suspect it's the insurer or not, you know, I don't like the idea of actually Bryce going against his own doctor's advice that he should be going to the gym. I, I actually don't like the fact that he's even thinking that maybe I shouldn't go because if the insurance company sees it, they might you know, see it as a basis to deny my claim. Bryce, they're going to den- they're going to find a way to deny your claim <laughs> regardless of whether you're going to the gym or not. I think that you want to follow medical advice here. and if it's going to help with your recovery, it's going to get you there back to work sooner and you're going to feel better about it. Then I have no hesitation recommending that people stick with these plans. I think where it becomes problematic, John, and and look, surveillance is a big topic. It can be really scary. Uh, You know, it it is a tool that disability insurers use because, like I said in our prior segment, there's a lot of cynicism involved. Most (laughs) adjusters think that everyone's lying. Nobody's telling the truth. Nobody actually wants to work. You know, everybody just wants to be on disability and nothing could be further from the truth. That is absolutely not the case. But one of the tools that they have at their disposal is to try and get a third party an investigator to follow you around for a few days and draw conclusions about what you're doing and your level of function. And whether you're showing or demonstrating on what they're seeing you do uh, is actually going to line up with you returning back to either your own occupation or to any occupation. And I think that what I was getting at is that where it can become problematic is if you are observed doing things that you've actually been either told medically not to do or communicated to your adjuster that you're not doing it, and then they see you do it, okay? A really extreme example, you know, your your adjuster, like look at Bryce, if the adjuster doesn't know that he's going to the gym at all, and that was under, you know, advice from his own doctor, then they're going to draw the conclusion that he's physically better, his mental health is better, he's good to go, he can return back to work tomorrow. And so having that documented somewhere and having that documentation available to the adjuster, validating that level of activity can go a very long way because it it takes the wind out of their sails, so to speak, John. Like then they're not, they want to get, they want a gotcha moment, right? They want to yeah. be able to attack your credibility somehow. When they can't do that, it doesn't get very far. And in fact, there's been lots of instances where surveillance has actually been You know, considered not really that probative by the courts. They actually don't think it's all that persuasive, most judges and juries, because people will be able to articulate for themselves, look, if I could work, I would work. And there's a lot of legitimacy to that. So, you know, is there a basis to be concerned? Yes. But, you know, do I want to advise Bryce to change his whole routine here? No, I don't. I think he's better off just waiting to see whether or not, in fact, it was the insurer following him or maybe a disgruntled ex, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows what it could be. Yeah. But, you know, if it's not truly, if it is actually the insurer that's going to surveil and they are actually going to rely upon the surveillance to deny your claim, they have to tell you that. They actually have to put it in their denial letter saying, by the way, we surveilled you for three or four days. Um, we, we did this surveillance and we observed you doing these four or five things. And we, in our minds, this really demonstrates a level of function that you should be able to go back to work. And if that's not correct, then again, you know, this is where your doctors come in and they can provide some context. You can provide some context as to why you were observed doing the thing that you were doing. But in most instances where I've seen surveillance, John, they'll go out for four days and they may see my client for two hours of those four full days of surveillance. That is not representative. And in fact, when I see claims where disability insurers have improperly relied on the surveillance, I'm all over it. That's actually a great claim for me because they know that it's not persuasive. They're not going to stand before a judge and say, this is the heart of it. And an insurance company recently got their wrist slapped big time with over a million dollars in damages because this is the tactic that they took. They had hundreds of hours of surveillance and they thought that was going to be the smoking gun for them to be successful in resisting the disability claim. It doesn't work that way, especially when the doctors are supporting that an individual cannot work all comes back to the strength of that medical information.
0: It's interesting too, because number one, um, surveillance is not cheap. So insurance companies not going to do it forever uh, if they even do it at all. Number two, because of that expense, they're going to want to get something out of it, get their money's worth. And two, can it not be counterproductive if they surveil you for four days and they show something that you might've done that they seem as sketchy, but then you've got three other days of you doing absolutely nothing, which would actually help your side, would it not?
1: It does. It actually I I've I can think of a case recently that we resolved where we just turned the surveillance on its head and it actually validated the limitations my client was asserting that was preventing him from returning back to work. And the insurers just get gobsmacked. They're looking at this thinking, yeah, you know what? There's a point there that we've now spent these resources um thinking that spending this money doing this surveillance is going to be able to allow us to close out the claim. And it's absolutely the opposite because we challenged the disability insurer we got an excellent result for our client and they kind of looked like they had egg on their face john i gotta be honest (sighs) because you know it helped my claim it helped me advocate for my client to say, look, ensure this doesn't make any sense. What you've observed is actually very consistent with what you knew about my client's level of capacity to, to do certain activities and function. He had the green light from his doctor to do you know, certain things to assist with the mental health component of his claim. What are you guys doing here? right? And they know it. So this is a really effective tool sometimes for us to turn it around and use it to our advantage. Now, would I prefer that my clients not be surveilled? Absolutely. And does it frustrate me when it does happen or it may happen? Yes. But I want people to know it actually happens a lot less than you think. And so I don't want people feeling like they have to be trapped in their homes just because they're advancing a disability claim. Not at all. If you're following your doctor's advice and you're taking the time that you need to recover, including you know engaging in certain activities, that is absolutely okay. You are still entitled to disability benefits.
0: And with that, we are pretty much going to wrap it for another show. Thank you so much for your contributions, through emails, and otherwise. You can continue the conversation with Tamar now, and her uh, her crew. It's really easy. the The phone number. Maybe if you want to have a a lengthy private conversation with Tamar and a member of her team. one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca is that email address we've been using. And there's also the option of mydisabilityquestions.com to ask questions freely, anonymously. And then finally, short, concise memos about LTD. Ton of topics, really easy to use. It's like Lego, uh, you know, and non-legal speak for, uh, for you as well. ltdfaq.ca, you can use that too. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.